From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Raj Nation, and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast-growing startups work with me because they want to become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, making his way to the microphone. From Paris, France, and currently residing in Paris, France. He is the founder and CEO of Lemlist. Please welcome Guillaume Mobesh. <laughs> Love the intro, man. <laughs> he is Guillaume Mobesh, otherwise known as simply G. As I mentioned, the founder, the CEO of LemList. What is LemList? Will they help you send cold emails that get replies? As they like to say, B2B does not have to stand for boring to boring. LemList tool powers sales teams, agencies, and B2B companies to personalize and automate their cold emails. They have over 10,000 customers in just a three-year period. They have gone from zero to $5 million in annual recurring revenue in that time period, scaling up to 35 team members. And here's the kicker of it all. They've done it all entirely bootstrapped. And today's conversation specifically, as we come to you with episode seven of this season, is rejecting a $30 million investment offer. Now, gee, usually my first question is, why is this on your mind? Why is this important to you? But I feel like it's kind of obvious why this would be on your mind if you rejected it. So I guess what I'll ask instead as a starter question is, given that the topic is rejecting a $30 million investment offer, um, the first thing I want to ask you with this as just a high level uh, is, why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so essentially, like, um, to give maybe a bit more context, uh, we, before, like, launching Lemlist, uh, in the early days, I was having a chat with a friend, and he was asking me, you know, what's up, told him about my startup. Then the first question he asked was, how much money have you raised from investors? Mm. And then I told him, but we, we haven't raised any. And then he said, in that case, you don't have a startup. So in the early days, you know, like, for me, I was associating startup and at least the success of a startup to the amount of money you get from investors. So in the early days, I spent a lot of time with investors. And I guess after one month of being rejected of people telling me it's a crowded market, it will never work out. We don't know you, etc. I just say, okay, fuck it. I'm just going to focus on my uh, customers, try to make them as successful as possible, build the best product ever created and just keep grinding. And eventually, you know, after all that hyper growth we had in the last uh, three years doing and scaling faster, I mean, than other startup and scale up that you would see in the media, I was like, it's crazy, you know, because I met tons of bootstrap uh, founders who are actually in hyperscale mode, uh, running their SaaS company, etc. But you would never heard about them in the media. So then I thought, you know, like uh, we could do something a bit different uh, because sure. I also have like a, a YouTube channel. So I was like, okay. I'm going to document a process where I will announce publicly that we're going to raise 20 million. It would be good because it will allow people to see, you know, like how does that work exactly? You know, when uh, you have a pitch, when you have an investors, what type of meetings, all these type of things. And eventually once we get an offer, we just say no. And just to show, you know, the word that you don't need millions to success, to succeed, that, you know, you can do it on your own without having to raise uh, money from investors. And that on top of it, you know, like, um, it's not the only definition of success and that you should consider other factors. Uh, so by doing this, you know, like uh, it, was, uh, it was pretty huge. We got <laughs> featured in uh, tons of press internationally. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool. And I, what, what I like the most, I think it's uh, all these people messaging me saying, 
hey G, um, I was actually in the same spot thinking about raising or not, but after your like video, now I know that I want to focus on being like profitable. So I think it's good. <laughs> well, we're going to dive a whole lot more into that story in today's conversation. Before we get there, let's learn more about you. I'm curious to know, um, this is kind of a rebel mindset in a way. Uh, I would say being an entrepreneur is its own form of rebel, but then turning down a lot of money is a rebel. When you think back to your childhood, were you a rebellious child? <laughs> Let's say, yeah, I was good to do things that uh, I shouldn't, I would say. <laughs> so yeah, essentially, like uh, I, I was a good student, but uh, I didn't really like uh, school a lot. So in class, I would say that I was very like uh, agitative, like I was... Uh, I was <laughs> the, the kind of kid at the, at the back end of the course and uh, talking a lot, making a lot of jokes. I was not super into, into class, and, but I, I always loved like, uh, learning new things. But I usually get bored uh, when I, whenever I was at school. But because of my parents, like, uh, didn't get any degree nor get like, uh, you know, the, the type of education. Because uh, essentially, my parents grew up in a farm. Uh, before basically coming to Paris and, and basically like uh, starting their nine to five uh, job. Um, my dad like uh, decided to take like two jobs. So my brother and I could basically have like a, a decent education. And for them, having a good education was about like becoming an engineer and study science. So that's what I did. Um, and once I became an engineer, I was like, okay, I, I want to do business because I think it would give me the same like uh, feeling of freedom that, uh, that, that I was looking for and freedom. It's not just, uh, you know, like you're free and you do like, uh, you don't do anything, but you can just go. It's more about like doing the things you love. And, uh, and essentially like, uh, that's how it started. I went to business school. Then I launched my first business, uh, with my dad. It was total fail. <laughs> so we launched like a, a t-shirt business. Since I was a biz guy, I was taking care of the business side of things. I would say, and my dad, he would do like uh, printing on t-shirts. Um, I was 100% sure that we would receive thousands of orders once the website would go live because obviously everyone would like to buy my t-shirts, mm -hmm. but in the end, they did not. <laughs> we had like uh, six orders or something. So it was a uh, pretty bad fail. But after that, I thought, you know, like uh, I couldn't find how to find customers for this business, but I'm sure I'm not the only one having this issue. So with a friend who was actually an expert in customer acquisition, we decided to launch an agency. I learned a lot from him. And then I started, you know, running tons of uh, cold email campaign, like sales prospecting campaigns, whether it's on LinkedIn emails uh, or cold calling. And uh, eventually I became like really good at it. And after, you know, like generating, I would say like millions of dollars from companies we were having in our clients, I was like, okay, maybe it's time for me to, to do it, uh, you know, for my own company. And, uh, and that's when we, we launched Lemlist with uh, my two co-founders. You mentioned during that story, you mentioned your parents. You said neither of them went to college. Um, and you also mentioned that you were that person who was maybe agitating the teacher in the classroom. <laughs> How do you think your parents would describe you um, both as a child and how would they describe you today if they were describing you to someone else? I think like uh, since my mom is Italian, uh, she would say that uh, I'm the most handsome and well-educated person in the whole world. <laughs> she wouldn't be an Italian mother if she didn't say that, that's for sure. <laughs> and, uh, and for my dad, I think he would say that uh, I'm, a, I would say like creative uh, and smart individual, uh, but yeah, it would be only compliments. So they're my parents, obviously they're not gonna say like bad stuff. <laughs> Well, of course. Yeah, of course. Of course. I'm just curious what, you know, the, the way they might describe you or what qualities they might, they might pick out. Um, tell me a little bit more about the entrepreneurial ecosystem in France. You've been there your whole life. You did mention that early in your journey, a friend thought you didn't have a real startup if you weren't raising money, but overall, um, can you just give us, you know, I'm in the U S can you give me and all the listeners in the U S an understanding of, What's the general impression of entrepreneurship in France? I mean, the word is French itself. Uh, <laughs> and, and what is the take on, you know, startups there? What's the perception? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's quite funny because um, actually like we're based in France, but 80% of our customers are based in the US. But uh, when it comes to like the, the startup ecosystem, I think it has been moving a lot 
in the last uh, five years. Uh, when I started, be, like uh, being an entrepreneur was uh, like it was very risky, and people knew it was risky. Uh, so some of them were kind of, you know, like, yeah, it's risky. You, you might be like uh, wasting time uh, doing this because, you know, like uh, you could get a really good job at a really good company, etc. But eventually, you know, it started becoming sexy. Like it's like, yeah, you're an entrepreneur. You're taking risks. It's, it's amazing. It can pay off big, etc., etc. So I think now more and more startups and being like and working in startups is becoming like cool. I think we have... Uh, this coming also, I would say, from uh, TV shows like uh, Silicon Valley, for example, where yeah. everyone was like, oh, yeah, being in a startup is so cool, etc. Uh, but on top of it, I would say that um, the fact that we have more and more money from investors overall is also a good thing because um, obviously whenever there is like fundraising, there is something in the media and a lot of people talk about it, which I think it's good for the startup ecosystem because it shows more startup, more innovation, and this is great. What's the drawback about this is obviously they only talk about startup who fundraise, but you know, like it's uh, there's always like pros and cons in in any system. But overall, right now, I think it's uh, it's very dynamic. We see more and more companies developing really innovative solution, um, and we also have like more fundings on different type of level. Like the government is funding a lot of startups, which I think is uh, is good, especially in some specific fields. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting. Um, let's talk about Lemlist and how you got to this point of raising a bunch of money and only to reject it. Now you talked about the creation of Lemlist was really out of, you know, you were doing emails for other companies as an agency. And then you said, well, we could probably just create a software ourselves and sell it as a, you know, sell an emailing software. So you get that you ultimately, you know, recently you have, a, you get a $30 million investment across uh, two different investors and you reject it. Now, before we dig into more of that rejection story, I just want to walk through the journey of how you got there. So when you started Lemlist, what was your initial strategy? Was it bootstrap or raise? And at what point did that conversation come up with the friend who said, Oh, you don't have a real company unless you raise? Yeah, so actually, like um, in the in the early days of Lemlist, uh, I had like my two co-founders, Vianney and Francois. We're a bit older, so I'm like uh, when we started Lemlist, I was uh, 20, 27, well, twenty six or twenty seven, and uh, and, and now you're thirty, and you're saying you're a bit older. <laughs> come on, come on, kid. <laughs> no, I, I was saying Vianney and Francois, my two other co-founders oh, are. Oh. Older. Okay, so they're, okay. around, they're, they're around like 45 years old. So okay. not, not my grandparents, nor my parents, but a bit older. <laughs> your brother, <laughs> and, uh, your older brothers. Your older brother, I would say. <laughs> and essentially, like uh, they seem they had like uh, a lot of experience uh, and they are really, really good in tech. They were telling me like, okay, you're the CEO. You need to show us that uh, you can bring business. And the first thing you have to do is to raise funds, you know? So in the early days, uh, because I was meeting with my friends and he was telling me this and my two co-founders were telling me that, you know, like they wanted the, me to start fundraising after one month of having them and my friends saying that you don't have a startup if you don't raise. I was like, OK, fuck it. Let's uh, let's try doing this, because in the meantime, they were developing the product, like at least uh, MVPs that I could sell. So in the meantime, I was like, OK, I'm just going to. You know, try to pitch, try to see like uh, what's up with investors. But very quickly, I got bored of it and I knew I was good at finding customers. So I was like, okay, let's do something else. Let's uh, not focus on something that is for me a defocus on your business. And let's, let's try to, to bring uh, a lot of value. Actually, what came up was that um, I had onboarded uh, already like uh, one or two person on the, on the MVP, or I think it was like maybe five people. And one, one guy, I helped him uh, basically like launch this campaign. And I knew that I had changed a lot of things in the wording, a lot of things in the way he was sending emails, explaining him like the, the right methods on how to do cold email. And he sent me a message saying like, hey, G, uh, just wanted to thank you because I signed my first $20,000 contract. And then I was like, and, and it was like basically like, hey, it's my agency, like it's life changing, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, holy shit, like this is what I want to do. You know, like this is... I want to be an entrepreneur for a moment like this. 
So then for me, it became clear, you know, in the early days that we needed to be focused on the success of our customers because if they were successful using Lemlist, they would stay with us, you know, like, and we would have created that, that very, like, uh, I would say, like, a solid relationship. Um, so essentially, in the early days, I would say that first month and a half was when I was in between my co-founders and friends pushing me to fundraise. Then I had that message that just pushed me to, to keep focusing on customers. And, uh, and eventually, yeah, we, we launched uh, on Product Hunt uh, in, the, in the very early days with our ugly beta. And uh, we were like product of the day, which was like really great, drove us uh, tons of signups, but the pro product was not good. <laughs> so no retention at all. And eventually like uh, with the people who sticked, we just like decided like to build that relationship keep focusing on them, doing more and more uh, sales outreach myself just to close more customers. I would say the most, the first hundred paying customers was um, me reaching out to them. And then it started building up more content, a community and, uh, and eventually uh, get where we are today. <laughs> now, when you launch on Product Hunt, so you obviously get some users through that, but Product Hunt is not how you get to 10,000 customers, right? Uh, yeah. and, and I think oftentimes you even sacrifice paying customers just for free users on Product Hunt or, or heavily discounted users anyways. So as you start to grow the company, is your customer acquisition method to really to start by using your own software to, to get meetings and, and, and ultimately talk to end customers? Yeah, definitely. And I was also targeting like uh, I knew my competitors would target like uh, much bigger teams. So I would target like uh, smaller companies where I knew that I could reach out in a, in a, maybe like in an easier way. So something that works really great actually when you do like a cold outreach is, uh, so you have like several strategies when you launch, but first strategy is basically like networking. So you're saying like, okay, I'm launching a SaaS. I've seen that you're also starting your own. So I would love to exchange on tips on how you can grow and do X, Y, Z. Uh, here's my background. Uh, would you be open to chat? This works pretty well. And then what, during the chat, you can qualify and understand whether or not uh, the person would need your software. Something that works also really well is basically like uh, doing interviews. So you reach out to people saying like, uh, let's say I'd love to interview you or whatever on a specific topic uh, because um, I'm writing like, a, let's say a roundup on a specific topic and I'm mentioning all experts. So people love to talk about themselves and love, you know, like uh, this type of thing. So this worked really well uh, to get insights on what people are doing, how they're uh, using potentially your competitors and whether or not uh, you can understand what's missing and eventually, you know, build it and then sell it to them. Uh, and all these things basically were allowing me, you know, to get to meetings with people in an easier way, build relationship and eventually, you know, like uh, build that momentum of getting more user, more word of mouth, more referral. That's something also I, I'm, I'm amazed by how few people ask for it. You know, it's like you have someone who's using your products and I think like very few sales people or very few founders asking for referrals when actually it's like it's one sentence that can open you so many doors because if you ask people like, okay, what do you think my product could benefit in, you know, your network? It's for sure that they will have like two to three person and then you can say, okay, do you mind introing me to X, Y, Z? And if that's okay, I can just send you the, the intro message so you just have to copy paste it. So making people's life easy, sending like the intro message, you just have to copy paste and getting intros like this. It's one of the easiest way and nicest way to boost your word of mouth and getting into more meetings with uh, potential customers. And it's again, interesting yeah. you say that a lot of salespeople don't do that because I historically have struggled to ask for referrals myself. Mm. And <laughs> actually just last week, uh, I did send an email to one of my clients and I, I literally wrote an email. I was like, uh, I'm good at a lot of things, as you've seen from the work we've done together. I was like, one thing I am actually terrible. And I was just totally vulnerable. I was, I was like, but one thing I have always been terrible at is asking for referrals. So here goes. And I said, do you know anyone in your network who, who you think I, you know, I'd be able to help as well? And then he, you know, he replied and he was like, he was like, yeah, I can think of a few people. Let me like, let me get back to you in a few days on this. Yeah, that's good. I, th I think it's uh, I, I understand why it's tough because it's, uh, you know, asking something from a client can feel like, you know, like uh, you're asking too much. 
and it's not natural to do it. That's I what I've always felt is it's almost yeah. like, a, uh, it's almost like, does it come off like the wrong way or, or I'm, I'm like, I have this unfounded worry that there's something along the way, maybe they like have not been happy with that they've never voiced. And now that I asked them for a referral, they're going to be like, well, you haven't done this thing. So why would I give you a referral? <laughs> no, I, I think to be honest, like uh, to me, you know, it's, it's all the essence of sales. So sales is about like helping people find a solution to their problem. If you're convinced that you're bringing a solution to a problem, then you should, like you should be, it's, it's, it's your mission to ask for referral because your mission is to find more people with the same problem that you can help. Mm. And in the end, you know, like if you ask referral to others, they should also be happy to intro you to their friends or network because they would be like, oh, this guy or their product or their service, they really helped us out. And you should definitely look at it. And eventually they should feel good about doing that referral because if you bring like, for me, it's the same, you know, like if I have someone uh, who's doing an intro for a consultant on a specific topic because they worked with that person and they had like a, a 5X in ROI or whatever, I'm like, yeah, of course, I want to work with that person and I want the exact same result, you know? So, yeah. I think the key, and, and one more thing I want to say on this, I think the key is the timing of the ask. And I, I, I have been on the receiving end of some referrals, some referral requests where the product or the service provider has not yet delivered any value to me. Like, like maybe I like literally like just signed a contract and they're like, Hey, do you know anyone else who this would be good for? Mm. And I'm like, well, let me experience it first. <laughs> and then I can tell you that. And so I think that's part of it too, right? Being able to yeah, definitely. time it the right way where they've extracted some value out of your product before you go ask them, who else should we talk to, right? Absolutely, yeah, 100% agree. Um, so I, I do wanna cover, if you have any other of these outreach strategies that you were initially doing, so you had networking, interviews, referrals, anything else that you were um, leveraging? Yeah, obviously like there is, a, so this these are, I would say like the non-standard way of doing things that works really, really well because very few people do it. And then you have like the more traditional way, which also in our case worked really well. It's you know, like you reach out to someone because you, you make the message about them. You try to connect with them on a meeting. And eventually, once you get to the meeting, you know, you, you're a bit more straightforward saying that, you know, you had, you had added your value proposition in the email. So they know what you're selling. And eventually, like, uh, if they tell you, like, yeah, I'm not so sure cold emails work. I'm like, we're in a meeting together because of a cold email. And then they would be <laughs> saying, like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I want to give it a try, you know. Uh, sure. So those are the things like if you can use your, your product for acquisition, it's, it's really great just because, you know, like by using your product, you're going to show to the person you reach out to that, you know, like whatever you're doing is, uh, is working. Yeah. So you end up getting a lot of customers through these different methodologies. Again, as we said in the last, in, in the first three years of business, you're over 10,000 customers. Um, at what point did the investor conversation start to like come into play? And was it, oh, there's a growing company, investors are reaching out to us or is it, we're growing now, so we should start reaching out to investors? Uh, what do you mean? Like for the, the, final, uh, the final things we did with investors or in the other days? I, I just mean, yeah, as you're growing this company, like mm. uh, unless I've got the story wrong here, I'm thinking, there, it wasn't just all of a sudden one day you're like, well, we're going to go find $30 million, oh, yeah. right? <laughs> like in this climb, were there conversations of, well, now it's time that we should think about raising money or were you actually getting inbound interest from investors? Yeah. So, so the truth is um, I, I often take uh, calls with investors uh, just because, I mean, I'm in very good terms with all the investors I've met and I particularly like some of them because of their, like the fact that they are smart, that they have like a bigger picture on the industry. So we exchange tips. Sometimes like they ask me about what do you think about that company? Hmm. And sometimes, you know, I ask them like other tips on specific things in the markets. Well, so how we did these a, relationships yeah. get developed, right? Cause not every investor yeah. is going to a founder, really any founder to say, what's your take on another company? Unless that founder has yeah. successfully exited three or four <laughs> times. In our case, I would say like uh, we, we document everything that we do. So we have a lot of articles. Uh, so we had our first article from zero to 250,000K ARR. Then it was from zero to 1 million. 
then from one to two million, uh, then from two to four, etc. So we we speak and document everything. So obviously, like investors can go through our articles, see our metrics, and usually they want to reach out. Uh, so this this kind of happen, and uh, and step by step, you know, like I usually refuse, and because at some point it's just a matter of you know where you want to focus. In the early days, I was like, okay, you know, I can always take a call; it doesn't cost anything. But now my time is so valuable that I just don't want to take calls that I'm not sure that they will bring something like uh, to either me, the company, or the team. Okay. Uh, and and I think uh, I think that's kind of how it went. We started receiving more and more messages from investors, but it was more like on a weekly basis. I would say that I would receive maybe one or two uh, emails from investors. Uh, sometimes it's just like their analysts. They saw an article about Lemlist, so they're reaching out, etc. Uh, so yeah, that's the thing also. If it's an analyst or someone who's just, uh, you know, doing like uh, data analysis or whatever. The paperwork, I just, yeah. Yeah, I just always reject. Not that yeah. I'm against them or whatever. It's just I know that they're trying to qualify me and I don't want that. But if it's a partner that I know was invested in some very interesting and relevant company and that they do the work to reach out for a very specific reason, then I'll be happy to have a chat because I know that they have knowledge on the industry and that it's always some good and interactive exchange. Um, yeah. But eventually, like, um, this whole idea of, uh, you know, like, doing this, uh, this fundraising thing, et cetera, like, came up with uh, Nathan Latka, who's uh, also, like, uh, pretty well connected in the SaaS like software industry. Um, and uh, we were having a chat. Uh, and then, you know, he was telling me, yeah, you have, like, a bootstrap company uh, working ama amazingly well, uh, growing like in hyperscale mode. So you don't need to raise funds, you know? And then I told him, yeah, like the only reason why I would be happy to raise funds, uh, it's just to get my article on TechCrunch. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, I said that laughing. And then he said, well, in that case, you just, you know, you, you just uh, go to see a VC and then you pay them like 5,000 grand to uh, basically give you like a term sheet. And then you said no to it. And then when he said that, I was like, well, it's true that no one has ever like said no in public to any investors. And on top of that, you know, we love being transparent, like it's part of our DNA. If you look at how do you do fundraising, there is nothing. You can't find like a pitch online where people are asking questions with investors. You can't find like, can't find pretty much anything. Like all the infos are coming from investors or founders. And it's not very accurate. You have either the case where it's like the founders that explains uh, that they raised in one week and is, here are the slides but actually like the slides don't give you shit as an info it's not transparent. <laughs> everything is blank you can't see anything <laughs> or on the other end you have like the vc who basically don't want to have too many people asking so they're gonna be, just put like a massive list and then it doesn't really make sense you know so i was like okay let's do things differently let's go in depth let's be super transparent and start this process okay so i want to ask you more about that process before I do, I just want to take a step back for a moment. And all this season on the show, we are featuring different companies in the Startup Hype Man portfolio, specifically featuring their elevator pitch using the Startup Hype Man proprietary KPASA elevator pitch formula. Today, we are featuring Engagedly, an HR tech company. And so if you're not familiar with Engagedly, here's the story. Uh, if you are an HR leader um, and you have been operating in this world over the last year, then you've been buried in spreadsheets and paper documents trying to track goals, OKRs, and engagement of your employees. And what happens from there is there's this trickle-down effect of missteps in the process, having to chase managers for approval, and really reviews just being subjective. And that was at least partially tolerable in a pre-COVID world when everyone is in the same office. But in the remote work environment, it's kind of impossible. And as things transition into a hybrid work environment, it's not going to get any easier. So Engagedly helps HR leaders streamline and control their processes regardless of the physical environment. Organizations are using Engagedly every day for company-wide people enablement. So what that means is all of performance management lives on one platform, no missteps, no hunting down managers, and so forth. HR leaders really love it because they're not buried anymore, but more importantly, at an organization level, performance turns into something that happens for employees as opposed to happening to them. 
Now you can learn more and get a demo by going to www.engagedly.com. Again, that's www.engagedly.com to access company-wide people enablement for your organization. Today, I am with Guillaume Mobesh, more affectionately known as just G, the co-founder and CEO of Lemlist. And we're talking about how he and his company rejected a $30 million investment offer. And what we're going to get into right now is the real background behind that specific moment. So, G, before the break, you said, well, you had this idea around how, what if we could bring transparency into this investment process? And your conversation with Nathan Latka was kind of like the seedling where he said, well, if you want to get in TechCrunch, just pay an investor 5000 to write you a term sheet and reject that. And you were like, okay, well, maybe there's something there. Now, I don't think you ended up actually paying an investor to give you a term <laughs> sheet. I think you actually got a term sheet. So take us to that, like the, the formation of this process. Who did you reach out to first and, and, and how did this come together? Yeah, so truth is, uh, no, yeah, we, we didn't pay anything because we are like a Frenchy bastard. So I was like, I need to find, <laughs> I need to find like a more creative way to, to do this. Yeah. So essentially, like um, I was... I was basically like um, in, uh, I think it was in September, uh, Roxanne Varza was uh, the, the CEO of Station F, which is like the biggest uh, French uh, incubator. Uh, she was basically like messaging me saying that uh, a US-based investors was very interested in investing in Lemlist or at least like meeting with me. And she asked me if I could, if she could uh, make an intro. So I said, yeah, of course. And uh, that woman, Pascal, uh, basically like messaged me and I really liked her approach because she was saying like, my husband is uh, working in growth for XYZ companies and he really loves Lemlist. He's been using it like every single day. So I was like, okay, you're French. I'm French, but based in the US, we need to have a chat and, and see what's up, you know? And we had like a really, really good feeling. This type of chat, you know, I was mentioning where basically like it's a real, it's not like a VC asking you for all your numbers and then like nothing in, in return. She was really into, okay, who can I do intro? Uh, what do you need exactly? Like she was really helpful and I kind I wasn't, I was really surprised and mm -hmm. really liked it. So now did you take this meeting and were you in this conversation knowing in the back of your head, I'm going to reject whatever I get? Or at no, this point, no, were you still no. thinking like, Hey, this is a good path to pursue. At this point, I, I didn't even know that we were going to say no and organize all these type of things. Or it was okay. very like it was back in September. And uh, so it was very and, organic at this point. Yeah, yeah, very organic. But then, you know, in December, when I when I was like, OK, maybe, you know, it's time like uh, that we start our fundraising series and eventually like get a meeting with an investor, try to see like the behind the scenes of how exactly does a pitch work? What type of question do you get asked and all these type of things? I was like who could I do this with? And then I was like, okay, I'm sure like Pascal, she was, she was very into Lemlist back in the days. So I asked her, you know, like, hey, Pascal, we're launching like this, uh, this series, you know, about fundraising. Would you be up for uh, recording with me like an entire like pitch session where essentially I would send you the pitch in advance, like the pitch deck. Then during like uh, whatever time it takes, we will have like a session where you can ask all your questions about the companies the metrics, whatever you like. And we record everything because we want to document the state-by-state -state process. And we, we, were, we are announcing that we are raising like $20 million. So she said, yeah, of course, uh, sounds like a lot of fun, et cetera, et That's cetera. a gutsy ask, you know, because a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of investors, even a lot of customers aren't into that kind of, you know, they're like, no, I don't want, I don't want my stuff recorded. There might be something proprietary <laughs> said here, right? So that's a very gutsy ask, I must say. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, because I was telling her, you know, like, because um, she also is like really like pro-transparency. So I told her, you know, like it's it's a huge market. Like we have tons of investment like coming in every single year, but no one knows what's the behind the scenes and no one knows like the real metrics, the real question. And I think it would be beneficial both from the VC side and also from the entrepreneur side that's everyone knows, you know, like, what are these questions? So people are well prepared. And in the end, it will serve everyone. So she was like, yeah, of course, sounds, uh, sounds interesting. And, uh, and then I sent her the pitch. And then she was like, oh, the, the metrics have changed a lot, you know, like in the last, uh, in the last months, it's, uh, it's crazy. Like, uh, I'm, I'm really like amazed by how you can keep growing like this, etc. So I was like, okay, thank you. And then, you know, like during the, the pitch, like she really digged into our, our metrics, et cetera. And then for her, it was, uh, 
it was definitely like a company she was interested in. It mm. was uh, really something she, she wanted like to, to basically like do an offer. Uh, and then uh, once she did an offer, I was, you know, like, uh, I was like, okay, before we say no publicly, uh, I'm gonna, because like Pascal was uh, super kind to already like do all of this. I wanted to tell her, okay, Pascal, we're gonna say no. Is that okay with you if we said it publicly? Just to make sure that, you know, like uh, we're not hurting her feelings or whatever and that everything is clear and transparent. And she said, you know, like uh, you win some, you lose some and it's fine. Like we have a good relationship. I think it was nice. Uh, the video of the pitch, you know, like was live and she already had tons of her friends saying it's really an amazing video and VCs from friends were reaching out to her also to potential partner on some other deals. So you know, it brought her like also a lot of attention and also a lot of uh, potential visibility. So she was happy with that. But then in, in, um, instead, you know, of saying no to the $20 million offer, I thought like, okay, we start receiving already a lot of messages and emails from VCs. So instead of saying no directly, I'm just going to say we received a $20 million term sheet at a $100 million valuation. And because we are receiving a lot of messages from VCs. We're just going to wait a bit, like one week to decide whether or not what we're going to do. I, I was not saying whether or not we're going to say no, but it was more like- Wait, let me, are... let me back up for a second. So yeah. you got, I think you, unless I'm assert, I think you kind of glossed over the fact that your valuation was a hundred million dollars. <laughs> uh, can you say more on that? Like, yeah. I don't even know what valuation you were going in to begin with, but did it get, did it increase in the, in the pitch process? No, no, it was, to be honest, it was, uh, we were saying like, okay, we're going to raise 20 million at uh, basically $100 million valuation. So it's like uh, 20% for yeah. 20% of the company. Yeah. And no yeah. one was turned off by that? Because that's no. pretty, I mean, I, and granted yeah. you, you've, you've done millions in revenue at that point, but that's still a pretty sizable valuation, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But the truth is, um, so when it comes to valuation, you have like, obviously like tons of parameters to take into account. In our case, uh, the markets, our competitors have raised like uh, almost 300 millions. So the valuation are already like super high and the, mm. the market size has already been, you know, like uh, estimated at like tons of billions. <laughs> so it's like, uh, okay, they, they know that valuation can go high. And the fact that we're in hyper growth, uh, really is uh, is something you know that uh, VCs they are, they have a lot of money right now so valuation is never really the issue uh, and in our case it kind of like made sense based on all our metrics so once we once we received that so essentially like to to kind of recap first step was announcing publicly that we were going to raise then we had the pitch meeting that was live recorded with Pascal. Then we started receiving like a lot of messages from VCs because they could have a look into our metrics, etc. So they were getting more and more excited. And even from the day we announced, we, we were starting receiving, let's say like tens of messages. After the pitch, it was more like close to 100 uh, emails. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and eventually like we received like the $20 million like uh, offer uh, and the term sheet. In that case, once we announced it, then it went uh, totally crazy. I received like... Uh, LinkedIn messages, Facebook messages, WhatsApp, cold calls, uh, text message from investors. And, uh, and okay, then so you hadn't gotten, you hadn't given a decision yet. You had just publicly yeah. announced, we have received a term sheet for 20 million at a hundred million valuation. Yeah, exactly. And, and this investor was, was okay with that. Even though you hadn't signed anything yet, they were okay that you yeah. put that information out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was fine. It was okay. And, uh, and, and they were okay with it. And then, we received a new offer that was a $30 million offer without having to meet with this actual investor. Like they knew a lot because essentially like uh, the truth is like these investors were coming from uh, an intermediary, like someone who sourced deals for them. Sure, yeah. And that guy, I, I kind of like knew him. So he interviewed me in one of his podcasts and then we had a chat on like multiple times because he's also an entrepreneur mm. and he knew, he knew the deal was hot. And these guys, uh, which are like a, a private equity fund, they were really like, they, they trusted that person. Like they were really like, okay, like I know that if you find a deal that's hot, we go on it, you know, it's, it's fine. And so they worked out like, a, I think it was like 50 pages of everything related to like our customers, the market, our competitors, uh, market analysis. Like they did really, really a, an amazing job. But what was crazy with uh, the offer was that it was like $30 million 
but $15 million was in cash out, meaning like it was $5 million for me, my co-founder, and uh, yeah, just me and my co-founders. <laughs> so they wanted so, to buy the business from you? Like they wanted no, no, you no, no. to... Oh, okay. no, no. It, it was uh, it was basically like fifteen million dollars for the company and fifteen million dollars directly in our pockets. And essentially, they oh, would take, they were just literally yeah. like funding you as individual, like basically like yeah, you yeah. were getting a five million dollars salary, like like a, or a bonus yeah. paid out to yourself. Exactly, and they would get like uh, maybe it was thirty thirty five uh, percent of the company. So it was like a bigger check of the company because we were doing a lot of cash outs, but they were like uh, investing like a, a larger amount. So. Okay, so like, many questions here, uh, <laughs> and and I gotta ask them quickly because we're we're running yeah. out of time. But okay, so thirty million dollar offer, five million of which you and your co-founders each get five million just to yeah. have for yourselves. So you'd be your basically set for life, or yeah. at least a good portion of your life. Yeah, um, you could probably retire, or at least go on like a five year sabbatical if you wanted to. And the rest of it goes into the company. Now they take a little bit more equity, 35%, I think you said. Mm. All right. So that's a pretty <laughs> wild scenario. My, I've, I've got two questions here. And the only thing is we got we to go through them quickly because we're running out of time. Question one, what did the first investor who was putting in 20 million who thought they had you with that uh, and they were 20 million at 20%, what did they think? Question two, What's going through your mind when you are told we are going to deposit $5 million into your pocket, into your pocket, not your company's pocket, but your pocket? So to answer your second question first, uh, I, I didn't sleep. <laughs> so, yeah, no, because we were not expecting such an offer. And as you said, like it's life-changing amounts. So I was like, okay, like what's the best decision? And it will basically answer like your first question because I actually called Pascal and we spent like two hours on the phone together. And I told her like, you know, like it's life-changing amount. I don't know what to do. Cause obviously like we would keep the control of the company, but we will still have an investor, which we don't want to because for the team, you know, it would be different. Uh, it would be a different way of operating everything. And, and then, you know, like uh, she basically told me like right now you were, uh, we were between like uh, four and 5 million in ARR at that time, I would say, or like 5 million. And she was telling me like, uh, okay, at the end of the year, how much do you plan to do like in AR? And I was like, okay, we're on the way to do 10, 10 million. And she's like, okay, whenever you're doing 10 million, it's, you're going to get much better offers in six months. You don't need the money now. Why are you like uh, stressed about that? Do your own things. And then once you're at 10 million, think you know like you would get more you're, you're not in a rush and she's like why are you putting yourself the pressure when actually you're already paying yourself a good salary you're getting every year like amazing dividends your team is happy and she's like okay i'm removing my investor hat so okay and she's yeah. like just keep doing what you do and and she really helped me out because to be honest when you get like this even though like um obviously for me you know it was important to show the word that message because i think like whenever you look at the people who fundraise obviously it's always the same type of people so it's there is almost zero diversity and eventually like if you tell people that you need to fundraise to to be a successful company then you close doors to all the people who, who could think of becoming an entrepreneur but say like no i can't even become an entrepreneur or i can't even think of becoming an entrepreneur because mm -hmm. you need to raise funds to succeed if we tell people that you can succeed without funds, then you inspire like a much larger and much broader audience. So I was like, okay, like, let's do it. Let's say no. And um, if eventually it fails, it fails and that's life and we'll go for another round. But for me, it was, uh, it was okay. But to be honest, yeah, I was uh, <laughs> definitely didn't sleep so well. My co-founders have kids also. So for them, you know, it was a, a big decision, but okay, we, we just like sat down yeah, their college was paid for right there. With yeah, with yeah, that. of course. But as you said, you know, with five million, to be honest, if you're if you're smart enough with five million, you can't stop stop working for your entire life. Like you put investment in good places, and and you're set. Right. Well, I, and I think that probably also speaks to you believe in what you're building, right? And it's not so much about personal gain. Personal gain is nice. Yeah. But the goal is not personal gain. It's it's to build something that's lasting and that makes an impact and that you care about. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, for me, you know, it's. Uh, in the end, you know, I asked myself this question because I grew up, you know, with uh, my parents didn't have a lot of money. 
Um, and then, you know, once I started like earning a lot of money, I was like, my life is going to change. It's going to become like way different, etc. But actually sure. it doesn't change. I still have my $5 t-shirt. Like I, <laughs> I like to eat at the same cheap restaurant with my friends and it doesn't change. Like I'm the same person. I haven't changed. But what makes me like super happy and what really like drives me is when I see people that let's say like uh, I didn't know in the past who just, I gave them advice and then eventually they become like successful and they are like growing. They, has, they are experiencing the same freedom that I am experiencing. And this what drive me. And I was like, okay, fuck it. This is my only focus. I don't want anyone to tell me like what to do or not. And we know what we're doing and uh, let's keep doing the way uh, things the way we do it, you know? This is quite a fascinating story. And I want to head to our wrap up now. Now, what's interesting is, like you mentioned, you documented this journey. So where can our listeners find this journey uh, uh, all the way up to where you turned down the offer? <laughs> uh, they can go on YouTube and I guess we can put the, the link to the, to the channel, but yeah, it's my name and that's the channel. <laughs> okay, great. And then uh, aside from the YouTube series, where can listeners find more about Lemlist uh, and check it out? Lemlist.com. Uh, everything is on the website and if they need demos, they can reach out to my sales team on LinkedIn directly. <laughs> Great. Now I'm curious to know um, who is one person who you want to shout out? It could be a coworker. It could be a mentor, a friend, an employee, um, an advisor. Mm, I think I would say like uh, Maxime Bertolo is French, uh, but I want to shout out to him just because, you know, like, uh, I think this whole transparency in business came from him. So before launching Lemlist, I actually like uh, read one of his articles where, where he was saying, you know, like step-by-step step how they got, I think that their first like 10 customers and he was detailing the entire process of how they set up ads, et cetera, et cetera. And how much money they were making, how much they were spending. And then I was like, it was really inspiring for me. I was like, this is what I want to do. And Eventually, you know, when we got our first customers, I decided to blog about it. Then when we got bigger and bigger and bigger, I was always blogging about it. And I think it's so nice because every time I write an article, I have like tens of people messaging me about how inspired they are. And, and I think this is part of life, you know, like the more you share, the more, you know, like you will grow personally and help grow others, the, the happier I get. And for me, that's, uh, that's my goal in life. <laughs> right. Now we'll do our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners based on our discussion today. I'll go first and I'll toss it to you. The topic today was the story of G and his company Lemlist rejecting a $30 million investment offer. Um, my big lesson that I've taken from our conversation is you have to fundamentally know why you want to raise money. You can't just say I'm raising money because I need to raise money. There has to be a core driving reason behind that. And then also, um, as it pertains to the idea of paying yourself, um, also just really know what you're in it for. And if you're in it for personal gain, it's not bad, but just be honest with yourself. What are you trying to do with this money? And are you looking for a cash out and to move on to something else? Or are you looking to build something that lasts and that, that should influence your decision-making? G, top one or two lessons for the listeners? I think, uh, yeah, I'm going to bounce, uh, bounce back on what you said. Um, I would say that, you know, like uh, knowing the reason why you're doing things is super important, but don't be too harsh on yourself. It can take time. In the early days, you know, uh, of Lemlist, I didn't have the same mission as I have now. I think like uh, ambition is like uh, appetite. It goes by, uh, by mm. it goes step by step, you know. Some people have a lot of ambition when they start. And usually those people have a lot of ambition because they were close to ambitious people. So you would see like a lot of people who have grown, grown up like in, a, in rich families. For them, the, the baseline of what you can achieve is already super high. If your parents are like making millions every year, you would think that as an adult, you should make millions. So when you grew up in a family with, that don't have a lot of money, for you, your baseline is like much lower and your ambition can be also much lower. So don't be too harsh on yourself. It would go like step by step. In, in our case, like in the early days, my goal, my number one goal when I launched Lemlist was 
I need to be able to pay myself an okay salary. Uh, and yeah. now it's it has totally changed. We want to be like the first uh, bootstrap unicorn in France, etc. So you know, like it has came with the years and with experience. So don't be too harsh on yourself and uh, and just do it. <laughs> My final question, which is how we end every episode on this show, G, fill in the blank. Entrepreneurship is blank. For me, entrepreneurship is about helping other people finding, you know, like uh, their true self and true freedom. Say more on that. I think, but it's, it's really my own personal definition, you know, but uh, for me, you know, like being an entrepreneur is not about like finding a solution to a problem and helping, you know, it's like in everything you do as an entrepreneur, you would help people, whether it's uh, your employees or your customers do things in a different way that they were doing before. And then, you know, like for me personally, I, I want my, uh, the people like I work with to feel that freedom, to feel that they own every single topic they're working on. And I want our customers and clients to be successful in what they do so they can feel that freedom of, you know, I'm growing, I'm growing my business, I'm helping my business grow and things are working. Great. Thank you, G, for joining today. He is G. Guillaume Obesh, founder and CEO of Lemlist. Thank you so much for joining today and sharing your story on Startup Hype Man podcast. Thanks a lot, Rajiv. It was uh, an amazing time. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guest for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I'll catch you next week. But in the meantime, word up, raise up.